0: This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK8. And also by TrekFan. It's not just a fan club, it's an adventure. You'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Don't miss out. Help move us toward the Star Trek future by visiting trekfan.org. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our new alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather
1: on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Tripp? Ready when you are. Prepare for warp. Of
0: course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me once again, as she is every single week, from that mysterious land down under, it's Kate Walsh. Hey, Kate. How's everything in Australia tonight?
1: It's very mysterious in Australia tonight. Almost mysteri- <laughs> as mysterious as mysterious as Flox's menagerie, but um yeah, um <laughs> I haven't actually been sleeping that well this week, but I'm hoping the uh Vulcan Neuropressure session I had this afternoon is gonna help with that.
0: Oh it probably will. I guess those kangaroos have been keeping you awake, right?
1: They have all that jumping around, it's really quite distracting
0: yeah you know why didn't Flux have a kangaroo in his sick bee?
1: It's a mystery really. I mean you think of it you've got the um, you've got the animal itself and all the uh, biological properties it may have had to offer. but you've also got the pouch which would have been quite handy for storing all sorts of things. There's blood worms, exactly. eels <laughs> containers of broth, who knows? <laughs> you know.
0: that's what I was thinking. That pouch would be very, very handy.
1: That's right, and they're quite good kickers too, so you get any intruders on board and you can just set that kangaroo right on those intruders. You don't need to just rely on the bat at that point, do you? You've got, you've got two kind of attack modes.
0: Exactly. It's like Flox has his own bouncer for bay. <laughs> That's right. I like that idea. <laughs> well, Kate, you know, I brought something special for you tonight to help you get through the show.
1: Okay. I'm intrigued.
0: Okay. It's it's a little nasal numbing agent because I, I noticed last week, I noticed those points on your ears and I thought that, you know, maybe you might have a little bit of a Vulcan thing going on there. And so I thought you might need this tonight.
1: Well, it's interesting that you should mention this, Chris, because I was actually thinking just the other day, given that we work so closely together, I really should be coming up with a nickname for you. And the one oh, that no. came to mind most <laughs> Um, appropriately was stinky.
0: <laughs> Why is that? Because I'm a human. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's that's right. Um, you know, and um, <laughs> I've always been into self control, and um, so I've always kind of associated myself with a Vulcan. I've played a Vulcan on Star Trek Online, and um, you're obviously human, so there you go.
0: Okay, well, it's a good point because, you know, to Paul, she needed a nasal numbing agent when she first signed on to the Enterprise. And that's who we're going to talk about this week as we delve once again into a character analysis. And, you know, we, we're going to be covering the crew bit by bit instead of back to back week after week. And we did Archer and his part of Steel a few shows ago. And so his first officer seemed to be the logical next stop for us.
1: That's right, and really, um, enterprise at least from my perspective is very much defined by by three major characters being Archer, Pole and Trip. Really, is that triumvirate that reflects what we see in the original series? And so, um, in addition to that, we've also got the conflict that is defined through Archer and the Vulcans and T'Pol being the Vulcan on his ship. So it's quite an interesting relationship and it was quite logical then to look at T'Pol next and to see how she affects the series as a whole and the characters that she interacts with.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely so. And that just reminded me of something that I don't really have in the outline for tonight, but what did you think, just before we get into the, the meat of the show here, what did you think about, that dynamic between Archer and topol early on where they kind of played that sexual tension a little bit. And, you know, I knew it was always there, but then they have that whole big thing there where, you know, Flocks is like really trying to psychoanalyze Archer and asks him, how long has it been since you've been with a woman? And, and then they have the the really great, I love that, that whole funeral scene for Porthos and everything that's going on. What did you think, anyway, about that dynamic of of Archer, to Paul, Captain, First Officer, human, Vulcan? He hates Vulcans. She hates humans, pretty much. But yet they kind of played that up a little bit.
1: I think they actually dealt with it really well in this series. They acknowledged that there was always going to be a dynamic, given that tension, which can lead to sexual tension. But they didn't overplay it. They didn't make it obvious. They dealt with it a couple of times in some subtle ways. Yes, in um, A Night in Sick Bay, they looked at the sexual side. But as we go through this series, we also see the emotional connection and the friendship that they develop and um, even, you know, that lifelong companionship element that could potentially be there. And so it's dealt with in quite a tasteful way. Um, and on the side, we get to see an actual romance explored with Trip. But yeah. they don't make it like a a threesome thing going on or any kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> much
0: to Flux's dismay. He would have loved that.
1: <laughs> so I think it's dealt with quite tastefully. It, it just acknowledges that that kind of thing is going to be there in a very close working relationship, where you yeah. where there is um, attention and you slowly develop respect. That can happen.
0: Well I like also in Twilight how she wants to take care of him in that future timeline and you can see that there's some feeling there even mm. though she doesn't want to admit it. You can even see that after the timeline is restored and we're back into the current time frame and also the just the final scene of the series where where she's fixing his tie and everything before he walks out to give the speech mm. at, in the the very final scene of the series you feel that from her as well towards him. So anyway, that just popped in my head here.
1: And I think towards the end of the series, it becomes much more of a a very deep friendship rather than a romantic or a sexual love. And and I think that they've dealt with that very tastefully.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was well done. But tonight we'll just really talk about T'Pol as a character. And you mentioned a moment ago about the triumvirate of Kirk Spocky McCoy from the original series and as Brandon has told us before, that was very much on their mind as they were setting up Archer, Tripp, and T'Pol, and they have the dinners together and such. And it, it made a lot of sense to have a Vulcan on the ship to recapture that TOS feel, even without the triumvirate element, but especially considering that. And it also made a lot of sense because of the central role that the Vulcans play in the setup of Enterprise itself. Now, I know, Kate, you're a big Voyager fan, and I did want to ask you, after watching Seven Years of Tuvok, what did you think about T'Pol as a Vulcan?
1: That's an interesting question. I found that as much as I'm a fan of Voyager, that Tuvok as a character lacks some depth to me. You Um, could say that. Watching Jolene Blalock as T'Pol... And then after I'd watched Enterprise watching Spock, I saw a lot of similarities between the two as characters. And, yeah. but, but what's interesting is that neither one of them seemed to epitomize what I would have thought a Vulcan was. We've got Spock okay. who's half human, yeah. we've got Topol who has always had her emotions closer to the surface. And in many ways has sought to explore those more than other Vulcans might. So as characters, I've found them more fulfilling to watch as Vulcans. Yeah. But perhaps not what yeah. I would have ha- had expected from what I came to know a Vulcan to be through watching Voyager and The Next Generation.
0: Okay. Well, that that's, that's very interesting because the first topic that I want to talk about is recapturing Vulcan and... By that I mean casting Jolene Blaylock, putting this character to Paul on the show, and and going back to the Vulcan of the past for a lot of us Star Trek fans. You know who, who watched TOS, and then we went through all the modern series. And you know, for me, Tuvok. I'm now. I thought Tim Russ did a great job. Actually, I think Tim Russ did a very, very good job of acting. As Tuvok, because if you've seen Tim Russ in other things, and then you watch him as Tuvok, I mean, he was really an, it was a very specific character he was playing there. And and I was impressed with that. But as a Vulcan, I felt like Tuvok was written almost robotically. He was not an interesting character. He was very much just this kind of cardboard, cut out stereotype of what we had kind of come to think of Vulcans to be which was very far away from what Spock was. Mm. But it's like separation in time. As you get further and further away from the original series and you go through the modern series, we kind of come to remember Spock differently than he really was. And then if you go and you watch the original series, you see, wait, Leonard Nimoy's Spock is not the way I remember it. Spock is a much more emotional character. Then we give him credit for being, especially in the first season of TOS. And what's interesting here in casting Jolene Blaylock, and, and I think they kind of got lucky because they T'Pol was the last character that they cast, and it was really hard to find someone to play this character, just like it was hard to find someone to play Jadzia Dax on Deep Space Nine as well. But it turns out that Jolene Blaylock grew up with TOS and she's like a really big original series fan and she used to watch TOS with her father and Spock was her favorite character. And so it was, I think the perfect setup for recapturing Vulcan. Here's a woman who is a good actress and she's a beautiful woman. So she got both of those aspects that they were looking for in the casting and she actually understood spock and i think she tuned out like through tng she said she she watched a little bit of tng you know she really thinks patrick stewart is a wonderful actor but she says at some point you kind of tune out and so she wasn't really following the modern series so i think that she was perfectly set up to recapture the original vulcan feel
1: it's interesting, I think, that if I look at her acting throughout the four series of Enterprise, at the start she reminds me very much of the portrayal that we see of Tuvok, quite robotic, yeah, a um, quite um, emotionless. But
0: with a but little more st- attitude.
1: A- and she's quite a departure from most of the Vulcans around her. She's quite unorthodox. So we tend to see yeah. it in her demonstrations, in her interactions with the crews, with the various storylines. Day-to-day, she's quite reserved in her emotions, but she has values and um, ideas that, that quite separate her from the rest of her species. In saying that, though, i I do find it interesting that she was quite a fan of Spock. And I think that she brought quite a bit of Spock to the character as the seasons went on. As we see that struggle with emotion and with spending more time with humanity and, in a sense, becoming more human. Obviously, she wasn't half human in the same way that Spock was. But she reminds me very much of some of these characters that we see in other series like Data, for example, and the EMH in Voyager who are striving to be human. Uh, and so that's a really interesting journey to observe with Depaul. And I think that her being a fan of, of Spock in the original series helped her immensely in portraying that.
0: Striving to be human, that's a good point, because if there's one thing that I see in Paul from start to finish here is that she definitely becomes more and more human as the series goes on. Which Which you would expect I mean i've you know I'm someone who I'm American, but I've lived most of my adult life in Japan, and at this point in my life, I'm probably a lot more Japanese than I am American, just in the way I behave and the things that I do, and it's because I've spent so much time in this culture you eventually you you know you change yourself, and you see that here with her too, you know she has separated herself from Vulcans, and like you said, she is a little bit different than them to start with. And then she spends all this time with these humans. And she only has Flocks as the other alien on the ship to kind of confide in. Otherwise, she's with humans. And there's even that scene where, in Broken Bow, where Hoshi says something rude to her in Vulcan. And she says, I was instructed to speak English on this mission. And I would appreciate it if you do the same. And even there, you know, even language-wise, okay, she's going to be speaking English at this point. I don't think they really call it Federation Standard in Enterprise. They just call it <laughs> English. So, but, but, yeah, that's a good point.
1: I think it's more than that with T'Pol, though. If we think back to conversations with her mother that we see in Season 4, where she says that T'Pol has always held her emotions close to the surface. And then we think of episodes like Fusion, where she leaves um, the security of the Vulcan environment and goes out and explores the bar out of curiosity and is drawn to humanity. There was always something in Topol that was very attracted to humans and I suspect the emotion that defines humans.
0: It was probably, you know, guests coming over to all those happening parties at the Vulcan compound.
1: Oh, you know, <laughs> she just, it's like a theme music. She, you know, she just had a thing for that smooth jazz going on.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's something too, that when we talk about, so so she's walking around San Francisco, she goes by the jazz club, she hears the jazz and it, it stirs some emotions in her. And it's maybe, I don't know, I was going to describe it as being the first time that she really felt emotions being stirred, but I guess it's not really that because we know Vulcans have these very strong emotions, but maybe there's something about the jazz that Allowed her to let her guard down a little bit, and and let something out.
1: Well, it was swinging, Chris. I mean, what are you going to do when the music's swinging? <laughs> well,
0: well, do, do okay. So I'm a musician, and I used to play jazz all the time. And and there's something about jazz that it just takes over. You know, it's something you you feel, and you either feel jazz or you don't feel it. It's not like it's not like classical music where you can like really really study, and you could become very good at it it's it's something you feel just ask Cisco he'll tell you ask Avery Avery Brooks he'll tell you while he plays piano he'll sing to you what it means to be so Chris
1: are you telling me that jazz you could single-handedly with your jazz abilities undermine the entire Vulcan population see
0: now that's the thing that's that is the thing that the Andorians never thought about If Shran, if he had been like Count Basie, if it had been Count Shran, they could have ended that whole conflict by just, (laughs) you know, surround Vulcan with ships, and you don't need to drill, you know, like Nero had or anything. You just surround Vulcan with some ships, some loudspeakers, some giant space loudspeakers, just
1: blast some jazz down there. Well, I I seem to remember a scene in Voyager where, was it Harry and the the two tones or I I can't remember exactly what (laughs) his band was called, (laughs) although they didn't (laughs) quite win the audience over it. It took the EMH to to do that job, but you know, maybe it's different for each different alien population.
0: (laughs) I guess, boy, we've really gone down a rat hole here, haven't we? So, (laughs) but jazz and emotions, and and that's what we see bubbling over with T'Pol as the series goes on more and more are the emotions. Um, Also about the casting of Dolene Blaylock. This is one thing that Brandon has said about her. Uh, One thing I did, I I wanted to go back because I had forgotten a lot of this stuff. I have this huge archive of Star Trek communicator magazines and Star Trek fan club magazines. This stuff going way back, all the way back through the 90s and like the late 80s even. And I went and I pulled a bunch of issues from before Enterprise aired. And I looked to see, you know, like, what were the interviews like? What did Rick and Brandon have to say about these characters, about the casting? What did the actors themselves have to say about this new journey that they were embarking upon? And one thing that Brandon said about Julian Blaylock is that he said that she is otherworldly and mysterious in real life. And that really translates well into the character, and when you were talking about her being different than the other Vulcans, you know, I think about that scene in Broken Bow when Archer comes in and, and the, the Commodores are there and the Vulcans are there and Saval is there, and then T'Pol speaks up the first time. And even there you you feel like this she's really different than these guys. She's she's not one of these old dudes here. Mm. And and what he's saying there about otherworldly and mysterious, you, you do kind of get that vibe.
1: Although in that, that first scene that we see her, it, it does set up that tension very well. You know that she's different, but you also think, oh, God, Arch is in trouble here. <laughs> One thing that Brannon did say about the casting of Jolene, which I found quite interesting, is that they were looking for an actress who was striking, yeah, had an intelligence about her and was also a good actress. And that was very difficult to find. And so I think uh we need to trust the process that they went through and and knowing that uh, particularly given that she was in the very last group of people that they had read for them for this part. Yeah. That uh that she was precisely what they were looking for from this role and that it wasn't an easy task to cast that role.
0: Yeah, that's why I, I feel like they really got lucky in mm. not only finding those aspects that they wanted, but finding someone who actually knew Star Trek on top of that and knew Vulcans and knew Spock and, and such. Yeah, it's hard to find uh, actresses like that because the those types of actresses tend to be film actresses because they mm. can go and they can get these huge deals to do movies. And uh, you don't find those types of actresses as often on television, especially, I mean, like comedies maybe something Mm. like that, but, but this kind of role, you know, playing a Vulcan is not easy. I think it's probably one of the most difficult races in Star Trek to pull off and make it work.
1: We also know from things that Jerry Ryan has said that, that some actors have that hesitation in joining Star Trek because of the fear of getting typecast, as well as that perception that they may need to commit for up to seven years based on the history of the past series.
0: Well, and that's a real thing. I mean, getting typecast is a real thing, and it happens to not only Star Trek actors, but actors in other science fiction franchises as well. And uh, But some people are able to break out of it. And um, yeah, but I can understand that concern for sure. Okay, so let's talk about another thing, and this is an interesting thing here. And this is also something that Jolene Blaylock said about Paul, before Enterprise aired, now one of the magazines I pulled out had this great article about Jolene Blaylock that was written by our friend Larry Nemecik, and this was before the show aired. And he was talking to Jolene, and she had some interesting ways of describing the character. One thing that she said was she called to austere yet sensual, and she said to Paul is feline in her movements. She's diplomatic with her words. She's dry. And so right there we have three different descriptions of how this character is being played. Okay, so feline in her movements. I guess that's her sensual part, right? Of course, then we get to see that in the decon chamber and such. She's diplomatic with her words. Okay, I'm not positive if I agree on this or not. She's dry. She's definitely dry in the first season. What do we think about how T'Pol came off on screen, yeah, starting with the first season?
1: In the first season, I think she was still finding her feet, at least from my perspective, as an actress, as a character. I think that in terms of diplomacy, she may have come across as diplomatic from a Vulcan perspective.
0: <laughs> but yeah. I
1: doubt that Archer saw her the same way. <laughs>
0: Right, and I don't think I saw it the same way either. More mm. like snotty, I think. Mm. She was kind of and snotty arrogant. to the humans. And Ar- well, of course she's arrogant, she's a Vulcan. And, and look at the Vulcans. I mean, the Vulcans in Enterprise were all arrogant, especially at the beginning. So Val mellowed out a little bit.
1: Certainly she'd always had a dry humour all of the way yeah. through. We saw that more probably from season two onwards. And if we think about the sensuality and the feline movements, as well as as she's described it, then I don't think we really saw that until she started to explore her emotions more. Yeah. I think I find that very hard to relate to from a season one perspective.
0: I would probably agree with that as well. One thing that I was happy to see, certainly as a male viewer anyway, was that as each season of Enterprise went on, they allowed her to look more and more feminine. Because at the beginning, it's like they went out of their way to make sure that she didn't look feminine. And like, we went to all this trouble to find a beautiful actress to play this Vulcan, and you found one, but then you made her look really, really boyish. And we know that that didn't have to be the case because we've seen other female Vulcans in Star Trek. You know, we've seen Solar on TNG, for example. They don't have to to look that way. We, we, We shouldn't have to assume that that's how female Vulcans would appear.
1: Well, I have heard that in terms of the hair department, that the instructions they'd received from the producers were that she was to look softer than the average Vulcan. And this is from season one. I don't know that we saw that at that stage though. However, as each season went on, the hair department did actually strive to soften her look more and more. We particularly see that by season four as it starts to get longer and and softer in the fringe as well. Um, yeah. And I think that that quite accurately reflects her transition as she integrates more with humanity um, and adapts and, and takes on human traits and explores her emotions more, partly through sickness as we see, but also through just her willingness to engage and to... Uh, to learn more about humans and her involvement with Trip as well. So that side of things is a really interesting reflection, you know, in her outward appearance of what we see in her character development as a whole.
0: That's a good point. I don't know how much of that was by design and how much of it was by lucky accident. But if we want to retcon that anyway, if we want to go back and say that that's why she looks the way she does in Broken Bow, and that's why she looks the way she does in the fourth season, especially by demons in Terra Prime, then, okay, I mean, it makes good sense. It's a very logical explanation, and and it certainly makes sense that way. Again, I I don't know how much of it was by design. I don't know how much of the change in her look was simply part of the ongoing effort to generate more, fewer interest in the show uh, as as well as the natural evolution of characters because this you see on any television show not mm. even just Star Trek or science fiction shows that characters tend to look more and more natural more and more like real people with each passing season of any television show mm. and so we see that here uh, not only with her but I mean we see it with Archer as well especially
1: well I mean I have read that it w- it was quite deliberate that as they went on they they did try to soften the look. I don't think it was necessarily by design that they started off with a harsher look with the intent of making it softer. Right. No, the softer part,
0: I agree, the softer part by design, but, mm. but whether it was.
1: and lightening her hair and, and so forth as they went on.
0: But whether it was meant to send a signal to the viewer that Mm. she was becoming more and more human and moving further away from her Vulcan side may Mm. have been a lucky accident. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so that's there. But the the transition was good though. Uh she had really good character growth as the series went on. And so what are some of your favorite Tapal moments from the series? Do you have anything that really jumps out at you as just something she did that was very memorable?
1: One of my favourite to pole episodes is Similitude, where we start to see the true nature of her feelings with Trip. Yet we're also experiencing it in relation to a a duplicate of Trip, and it's quite a complex storyline in general. That episode, but that interaction with Sim is quite complicated, and it it leaves a lot of questions in the mind of the viewer. And we really get to see a softer side of Topol. It would have been quite easy for her to dismiss Sim's feelings as purely being um, a replicate of of what Tripp had experienced, yet she treated him as an individual and his experience and his emotions as his own. And so for me, that's actually a personal favourite moment for me because we see to Paul allow herself to be vulnerable.
0: I think that's part of her growth as well, because an average Vulcan would have just taken a completely logical approach to that, right? And
1: exactly that he have. was just a clone and that's it.
0: That's right. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, well, that's pretty deep, Kate, but I'm going to, I'm going to outdo you here. I'm going to go even deeper. Oh boy. One of my favorite moments is when she proves to Archer and Trip that with proper discipline, anything is possible as she cuts a breadstick in half with a fork and a knife.
1: <laughs> oh, that's deep. <laughs> that is actually a stand-up moment for me too. <laughs> oh, oh, dear, yes. That That's real Vulcan discipline there. Just heaven forbid that they should eat with their hands. I
0: know. It's a good thing that Starfleet headquarters was in San Francisco and not in New Delhi because, you know, eating with your hands, Vulcans would have just never gotten on with that.
1: (laughs) I wonder how she would have done with chopsticks.
0: She'd probably have been pretty good with them, you know. It's the discipline thing.
1: That's right. That's what I'm thinking. She did enjoy a good pecan pie as well, though. (laughs)
0: Well, she should go hang out with Janeway Janeway makes delicious pecan pies (laughs) So do do you have trouble with chopsticks, Kate?
1: I'm actually not too bad with chopsticks I don't think that my technique is entirely traditional But it does the job I think I hold them a little too low down for Japanese taste uh,
0: Holding one in each hand is not traditional
1: Okay, so another one of my favorite (laughs) T'Pol moments isn't even a T'Pol moment. And I'm referring here to Carbon Creek. Oh, yeah. And T'Pol's, I I believe it's her great-grandmother.
0: Well, she calls her her foremother, but I guess Mm -hmm. it was, I think it's supposed to be great-grandmother.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, we owe completely to to T'Pol's great-grandmother. The Velcro... Running shoes of the 1980s. Without her, we would have been lost.
0: Isn't that a great scene where she walks in and, and you think, "What is she going to give him? She's going to pollute the timeline. She's going to change the future." Well, she did change the future. What is she going to give him? Is it going to be? Is it going to be Tang? Nope. It's not Tang. It's something is else. Is it going to be like an iPod in the future? <laughs> it's not an iPod. It's Velcro. <laughs> that was a fantastic scene.
1: Yeah. And as I said, it's not technically to pole, but it's amazing how much she looks like her ancestor.
0: She really does. Just a spitting image. To poll, to mirror, spitting image of one another.
1: One could be mistaken for thinking it was to pole.
0: Well, you know, I'm going to go with another moment. I'm going to be really serious again. And actually, this is a moment where I think it shows how she's embracing humanity a bit and she's changing. And it's just those moments when they have the movie nights where she starts to get annoyed at Phlox for talking throughout the entire movie.
1: Oh, dear, the movie nights. <laughs> 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 You've got to love that. And, and And I particularly love the scene where... T'Pol goes to watch uh, Frankenstein and she's even going to recommend it to Ambassador Saval because it's a perfect illustration of what Vulcans went through during first contact.
0: (laughs) See, she does have a sense of humor. Who says Vulcans don't have a sense of humor?
1: (laughs) There's so much great humor through uh, T'Pol in Enterprise and not to forget how much she was looking forward to Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> she actually does That's come excellent. to love movie nights
0: she does because she's becoming more and more human alright are there any other moments that stand out that you want to mention here
1: I would mention Vulcan Neuropressure but well, you, know, I knew you could, were going mention that could go somewhere we just don't want it to go so I might just <laughs> leave it there
0: so Let's talk, as a last major item, let's talk about the evolution of T'Pol. Because as I mentioned earlier on, the T'Pol who we see in Broken Bow and the T'Pol who we see in These Are the Voyages, and for the purpose of this discussion, yes, I will consider These Are the Voyages to be the final episode of Enterprise, even though, as you know, I don't actually consider it to be the finale of the series. But that scene, which I already mentioned, when Archer is getting ready to walk out to the chamber, you know, at the founding that that interaction between T'Pol and Archer behind the scenes, I I think really highlighted who T'Pol had become. Uh, You can see her emotion coming through and she's just not at all. And it's Archer and T'Pol together, just like Archer and T'Pol are together in Broken Bow in that scene where they have Clang in the, the little medical room there. And because the situations are, are kind of similar, that they're together, you can really, really see how much she's changed. And, and Archer's changed too, but not not nearly as
1: much. I think the wonderful thing that we can see through comparing those scenes is the friendship. And it's quite a deep friendship that has developed. There's a trust Uh, You know, she has supported Archer throughout the series in times when they thought that she would completely go the Vulcan way with things, and yet she supported him and his captaincy and his decisions. He placed her in charge of the ship at times. He supported her when she needed it in the episode the seventh. And so we get to the end of the show as a whole, and there's a very deep friendship and a trust. There's obviously that alternate universe stuff as well, which, which doesn't transfer through, but there's quite a deep connection there. And, and as we discussed earlier, at this stage, it's not actually sexual. It's entirely um, platonic, but it's very deep. And we see that they've come to rely on each other and trust and respect each other. And the thing that this this says to me is it really sends a message of hope and it lays the foundation for looking forward to the Federation And establishing these legitimate partnerships where we start off with humans and Vulcans having this animosity towards each other. And at the end, you know, those those two characters represent where we can go moving forward.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I I was thinking about how she gets from there to here. I I sound like I'm quoting the theme song, don't I?
1: It's been a long road.
0: (laughs) it's been a long road for T'Pol, but th- there were a lot of things, you know, before, before Enterprise started, the events of the series started, Topol's quite old, you know, Topol's always trying to figure out early on how, just how old are you? So he wants to know, and she had a number of, of jobs associated with the government over the years. And it goes back to when she was an operative for the Vulcan Ministry of Security which takes us to the 7th, which you just mentioned a bit earlier. She also served on the... She served on a ship called the Solea, which was operated by the Vulcan High Commands Science Council. And she was the deputy science officer, and she also worked with the Vulcan military. And then she went to Earth. So 2149, she went to Earth, and she worked together with Saval. She was an ambassador of sort, not the ambassador, I guess, because that was Saval, but she worked there with him. And all these things were like very structured within like the good Vulcan, you know, representing Vulcan and fulfilling the role of the government, the military and such. And so when we get to Broken Bow, she she's already had this long career at this point. And a lot of things had to happen to her along the way, which we get to see in the series that make her the person that she is at the end, as we were just discussing. And th- there were a lot of little moments along the way, but there are also some big moments. And actually I outlined seven, what I consider key moments for Depaul as a character. So tell me what you think about these. The The first one on my list is Pajim and everything mm-hmm. that happened at Pajim. And I feel like there are that, when they go down to the monastery at Pajem, at that point, she's still very much the good Vulcan. You know, everything that the High Command says is true. Of course, there's no spy facility here. You know, it's, it's no big deal. We have to respect the monastery. But after what happened there, after she finds out that there's this hidden complex underground, and especially after the High Command decides to make her the fall guy, or as I call it, the Falcon for what happened there. And they, they blame her and they recall her to Falcon. And I think that's the first moment where she really starts to question everything that she's believed up to that point. And it's a, it's a transitional moment for her.
1: Well, not only that, but she actually, she doesn't hesitate in handing over her tricorder to Shran when Archer asks her to, when they discover that it is in fact a spy facility. Her ideals are very much based in what she thinks is right rather than what high command is going to say that she needs to do Mm -hmm. just as a rule. She has a very strong sense of morality of her own.
0: And I think that's the start of this transition for her. And then another one is, you know, this whole thing that the Vulcans have about time travel being impossible. And she really tried to stick to that for a long time. And, you know, she didn't believe all the Crewman Daniel stuff. It's just not possible. There's no way that you went to the 31st century. Jonathan, no way. But finally, in Carpenter Street, when she actually ends up, Back in the past with Archer, she has no choice but to admit that mm. time travel is real. And so that's another situation where she has to admit that, yeah, okay. It, it's this isn't this isn't true. What I believed all this time isn't true. And so I see that as another moment where she's becoming more comfortable questioning the Vulcan heritage that she has and becoming uh more balanced, I guess, between these two cultures that she's finding herself caught between.
1: And it's interesting to me that that is one of the ideas that she holds on to for probably longer than anything.
0: And why? I don't know. It it reminds me how, you know, we all have these things that we believe mm. that aren't necessarily true, but we like cling to them. We're determined mm. that it's true.
1: And of all of the, the sociocultural ideas that she could have held on to, time travel it was a scientific idea. And Archer was was trying to present her with evidence. To the contrary, she just wouldn't be open to it. And, and that's a scientific principle that you thought she might have been open to, is, is exploring new evidence.
0: I guess for Vulcans, time travel is kind of like climate change for humans of today, right? Some people just... <laughs> Will not believe that it's real despite the overwhelming evidence. There you go. <laughs> so, the next thing on my list is Pinar syndrome. Because she encounters these falcons who have chosen another path, she contracts this disorder. And during the process, she has to have an experience with heightened emotions she has to do something that's considered taboo within her culture and then she sees how her people her government is intentionally avoiding letting people know the truth about pinar syndrome the fact that it could be cured and and she has to question that i think the the validity of everything that she's been taught and that she has been serving up to that point
1: it it almost seemed to me that that she had a very strong moral perspective even before then that she was loath to condemn any one group regardless that you know these are these are a personal values that she brought into the situation and that you know she never would also have sacrificed Someone else just to put herself in a better situation. So there are a lot of values coming in there that that weren't just related to Penar's syndrome. That she's very open minded. That she will fight prejudice in all of its forms. And this was just another one of those.
0: In a way, amongst these very different Vulcans of Enterprise, she was displaying more of the principles of Vidic that we know come later on. Mm. For well well that they had, but then which resurface later on, you know, as we find out the whole background behind that as the series goes on. So, okay, the next one that I have on my list, and of course I'm I'm building here, right? Like each one of these changes her and then it changes her more and it changes her more. It keeps driving her towards who she is by the end of the series and the next one on my list is her addiction to trillium d
1: and this is such an interesting storyline that initially when she encounters it, it it makes her so vulnerable it almost separates her from the enterprise crew yet she's still drawn to the effects of of it allowing her to experience emotions and finds a way she safely inject these small amounts of uh, Trillium-D into her bloodstream and eventually develops an addiction to that. And in some ways it has actually enabled her to become the person that she is because we see that it opens her up to her experiences with Trip. Yeah. But ultimately it becomes detrimental to her. It jeopardises her health. Um, but it does change her forever. It does alter her brain chemistry and her ability to suppress emotions in the future.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, so it's kind of like Farage on big bang theory when he has a drink and he's then able to open up and talk to women. It's kind of like that. The only difference is that this actually, like you said, did change her. It had a long-term impact on her and, but no, seriously, I found this to be a very interesting storyline in Enterprise. I really liked the fact that they were willing to take a major character and essentially make them a drug addict mm. and explore what that means for someone to become addicted, to to hide it from their friends mm. and their family, and then to recover, but there are always some lasting repercussions to that. Mm. And to do it with the main character on Star Trek... And especially for that main character to be a Vulcan was, was unique really within all the series.
1: And it was interesting too, because we have her recover from Panar syndrome, which also depletes her ability to cope with emotion, but there's also this addiction as well. So there's this constant battle with her, um, with the mind meld earlier on with Panar syndrome, then with the Trillium D addiction, um, And there's this constant battle in her wanting emotion, but it being something that has the capacity to be quite destructive for her as well.
0: And then the next thing that I have, and this one we'll just hit really quickly here because it's just a transition point is her commission in Starfleet. The fact that she resigns her commission with the Vulcan high command, she becomes a civilian on the ship and then ultimately she gets a Starfleet commission and she becomes a Starfleet commander. And just it's just a transition point. You know, it's it's all mm-hmm. this has been pushing her away from the Vulcan side a bit, towards the human side. And this is just kind of a visual marker that something has really changed at that
1: point. And her willingness to to really step away from that Vulcan career path that Initially, yeah. with Saval was so set for her. She was essentially his right. second in command, you know, to leave that behind and to look at what a career with humans could be and the potential for that. And she had these arguments with her mother about whether, you know, her, her career should be about helping Vulcan or not. And the way that Depaul viewed it was that in actual fact by working with humans she was helping Vulcan because the two together would be stronger than the two, than each alone.
0: It's only logical. She had a very good point there. Well, that brings me to the next item actually, which is the Sirenites and the death of her mother. Because as you talk about the debate she had with her mother, and we know that her, she didn't have the best relationship with her mother at all times, which is something, you know, I can certainly associate with. But uh, it still, the death of her mother, especially when she found out what her mother's ideals were and what she was fighting for, I think had a a really strong impact on her. And and that also helped to bring those emotions up a little bit more and help push her even further along this path.
1: I think it was quite interesting as well that her mother had also – chosen an alternative path to the traditional Vulcan um, way of doing things at the time and that although they had had tension, um, her mother had originally been an academic and had lost her job because of T'Pol, that they were able to reconcile through those differences and they were able to say, you know, maybe – we're both looking for similar things here. At least that was my take on it, and that end that moment where T'Pol's mother's dying and T'Pol's holding her and crying, that there was some sort of reconciliation there through that experience with the Sirenites.
0: Most definitely. And then the last thing that I have on my list is at the very end of the series, and it's the whole Terra Prime incident. And it's just the point, you know, where finding out that she interrupted have this baby and then the baby dies and it's a really, really hard time for Paul and for Trip. And then the next thing we see after that is what we've talked about earlier in the show tonight, the final scene, the ceremony, and she's with Archer. And, and that came right on the heels of the tragedy, you know, of the death of their child. And, and she's there for Archer, and I think it's just the completion of, of that journey. And so she really try. If you really stop and think about it, like I often feel that the character that stands out in my mind as being a character that had one of the greatest character arcs in Star Trek is Kira on Deep Space Nine. Where she started and where she ended up, and if you really stop and look at T'Pol, I think in four seasons she went through kind of a mm. similarly drastic transformation.
1: I'd agree with that. I think that um, the transformation was quite dramatic over those four seasons, but I also think she added so much to the series and to the franchise as a whole in her journey and in what we see of the early years of those relationships with Vulcans and humans. And and you mentioned the baby with her and Trip as well. And and I look at that and I look at her relationship with Archer. And it, it's the very early years of starting to form a bond between these races, of getting beyond that initial animosity that we see at the start. And and we've discussed that before, we've we've talked about you know, a little bit about first contact and about the controversy about how the Vulcans were portrayed at the start of Enterprise. And I think that if we look over Enterprise and its entire four seasons, that that journey is actually quite smooth if you look at the transition between, you know, for T'Pol as a character and her relationship with humans and how it's developed. And it's it's quite um, an interesting journey to observe and and to see how possibly we can get to that point where Vulcans and humans are on good terms. And we see those very early signs through those relationships that Paul develops.
0: So I think that sums up Paul very well. Uh, Do you have any other final thoughts?
1: As I said, I'd be very tempted to go into the neuro-pressure, but I'm probably best <laughs> not to. I could also go a little bit into the decon chamber and her going into Pond Fire a little bit early, but meh. <laughs> You're
0: going to steer clear of those.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's another show.
0: Well, my final thoughts are just that I think that I know there are some people who are not the biggest fans of Jolene Blaylock or Paul. Or the way that she portrayed the character but but I really think if you stop and you really, really look at where she started and how they handled it and the way she portrayed the character, I think that that they really did hit a home run in their casting, and she, like you said, she really added a great deal to the show and it was really, really important because on a show where the crew is pretty much all humans you needed that and it was a big job for her much more so than the alien characters on other series because it was her, it was her in flux and and they had, they had to carry the banner mm-hmm. for the aliens. And I think she did a really great job. And, and even though it may have veered away from how many fans think Vulcans should be portrayed, I think that uh, they did a really good job in the writing of creating a very interesting character and adding some much needed depth to the Vulcans on a personal level, which is something that was really lacking in Star Trek uh, after Spock was no longer mm. on our screen every week or in the theaters every couple of years. So so I, I really enjoy the character of T'Pol very much. Okay, it's been really great talking about Paul today. We went down a lot of paths that I wasn't expecting, and that's one of the great things about these discussions. But this isn't the only thing that we've been talking about this week on the network. So here are some other things that you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM Previously on Trek.fm, the Orb, the Maquis. But then he tells Eddington, I'm going to do this to all the other Maquis planets as well. And it's you you don't f with the Cisco is basically what we get to here. <laughs> <laughs> do not frack with the Cisco. <laughs> exactly the ready room, the Q and the gray. Well, there's there's kind of two sides to his guide to romance though, because while we do see his uh, futile attempts with Catherine Janeway, there's also the interaction he has with the female Q, which I found be much more interesting. Decade. STO Foundry, Alpha Flight.
1: And it's quite light. The main thing is you get to fly around, test your flying skills, and test your ability to withstand Hold combat. I think we failed in that sort of time. <laughs> but let's just ignore that.
0: To the journey!
1: Life on Voyager.
0: Well, I'm just saying Whoa. there was a certain, you know, there was a time period when the Doctor was, you know, like a kindle. So that's all I'm saying.
1: I would not <laughs> be a Kendall. Let's put okay. it that way.
0: Commentary, Trek Stars. A stir. Of echoes, and it's almost like, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the way Unbreakable is structured, where he completes his arc, and there's still this thing left over. Warp five. Inside, Flock is "Sickly."
1: Once Porthos had been Im- immersed in that uh, broth, it almost became like a master stock.
0: Trek news and views. Trip Tucker.
1: Some of those people are going to be like Trip. Some of those people are going to be completely driven by and influenced by that childlike sense of i just want to see what's out there
0: literary treks star trek reference books now philip do you have these spread out so like in your workshop are you trying to actually recreate a life-size replica of the enterprise d and what do your neighbors think about that and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all these shows. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. Some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them all on iTunes, on Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Zoom, Xbox. You can stream them from the website, download files from the website. Just about everywhere you get your shows, you'll find Trek of Film. We're like Shran. We're like Jeffrey Combs. We're everywhere. So just visit PD for podcast directory to get all the links. Now, Kate, we've been very fortunate the past couple of weeks to have some reviews to share with everyone from iTunes. And uh, this week, apparently, we are doubly fortunate.
1: We are doubly fortunate. We've received two five-star reviews in the US iTunes store this week. The first was from a listener by the name of Graboids, and uh, he's left, uh, or he or she has left, a wonderful review, which I'm going to read out a little bit of it for you. Nothing uh, egotistical in this at all, but they've said that the hosts are engaging and their approach to the series should appeal to both hardcore fans as well as new viewers who may be watching the series for the first time since it began streaming on Netflix. And Chris, they've also uh, mentioned that the production values of the podcast are top notch. The sound is crisp, and sound bites are also great. And they've said that it's one of the best podcasts going, so that's great feedback. Um, Given that there are only five shows into it as well, they would be wanting to listen to episode six because we've also received a fantastic review, another five-star review by a listener called the Mike Jones Life, who has been particularly keen on our interview with Doug Drexler, which was episode six of Walk 5. They've said that after listening to the interview with Doug, they really want to give Enterprise a second chance. They've thoroughly enjoyed the interview and his insights into the industry. And and Doug really was a fascinating listen, wasn't he, Chris?
0: He really was.
1: (laughs) He was so much fun and he gave us so much uh, information, not just about Enterprise but about the next generation and about the industry as a whole. So that was great to listen to. We've also received a lot of feedback in general from listeners on Twitter, on Facebook, on the website, and I thank you all for that. It's great to hear your thoughts. Um, the interview with Doug has been very popular, but we've also received a lot of great feedback about the episode from last week which where we spoke about Phlox's sick bay. and uh, it's great to keep hearing what you've got to say about the show. So thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thanks everyone for the feedback and thanks Scrubboids and The Mike Jones Life for those reviews in iTunes. And I have to say, Kate, I think The Mike Jones Life, that sounds like it would be a really great sitcom.
1: It does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it almost sounds a little bit like, uh, you know, the uh, the current decade version of Everybody Loves Raymond.
0: Yeah, Everybody Loves Mike. I like That's it. <laughs> so thanks again for all of those. And if you enjoy the show, please drop by iTunes and leave us a star rating and a written review. We'd love to hear from you, and it does help other enterprise fans find the podcast as they search in iTunes. Also, if you'd like to send us a message via other channels, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can go to our website at film slash contact. There's a form there choose to send to a show and choose warp five and that will come to Kate kmb by email if you'd like to send us a voicemail it's very easy to do that as well look at any page on the website look along the right hand side you'll see a tab that says send voicemail if you click that a box will appear you can use your webcam's microphone to record a message for us and you can upload it to us as an mp3 file right there from the website also, if you'd like to talk to other listeners, you can do that by going to trek.fm slash forums. There's a section there for Enterprise, and there's one for Warp 5. And you can join in a big conversation, and uh, some of the Trek FM crew are there, as well as our Kate and myself. If you're on Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And, you know, we're always on Twitter, where we tweet away night and day about Star Trek, and that's under username trek.fm. Now, Kate... What if people would like to look you up personally? Where should they go?
1: Well, I certainly tweet night and day, perhaps a little bit too much. And you can catch me on Twitter <laughs> at Kate is great. OK, send me an at reply. Let me know you're a listener of the show, and I'll follow you back. And we can talk about Warp 5 or Enterprise anytime you like.
0: All right. And, and you also talk about bats and moonhawks and everything Pyrithian, right?
1: I, I had a bit of a conversation about Porthos today. I'm, I'm quite adept at, at dog barking, so if you want to join in that conversation too, feel free.
0: Right. But on Twitter it's just you typing bark, bark, bark. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the occasional arf.
0: Occasional arf, yes. Well, if you would like to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, and you'll also find my personal website under that name at c.brianjones.com, where, believe it or not, I do talk about things other than Star Trek. And with college football season coming up, there will be a bit of that there as well. So uh, check that out if you're interested. Elsewhere on the network, you'll find me on two shows each week that I do with Matthew Rushing. On Sundays, we do literary treks where we talk about Star Trek books and comics. And on Mondays, we do The Orb, where we talk about Deep Space Nine very much in the same way we talk about Enterprise on this show. And also on Tuesdays, you'll find me on the Ready Room, where we talk about all five live-action Star Trek series, as well as the movies and sometimes other special topics. And I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts from all around the Trekka Film Network, as well as other guests as we take a fun look at news and a fun and serious look at various episodes. So check that out as well. Also, Kate, before we let everyone go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsors for this week's show. Your support of our sponsors is very important to making it possible for us to bring Warp 5 and all the other Trekafilm programming to you each week. First, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS, that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, online store, really anything else you can imagine. Trekafilm is built on Squarespace. My personal website, my company website, client websites. I really love Squarespace, I have to tell you. I've been using them for six years and I would love for you to try them out for yourself absolutely free. Create your own space today. Go to squarespace.com, get a 14-day free trial, no credit card required. And the whole thing starts, when you do sign up, it starts at $8 a month, very economical. And using our offer code TREK8, you can save 10% off that for the lifetime of your account. So please support Squarespace and support Trek Film. Go to squarespace.com and we thank them for their support of Warp 5. Also, please visit trekfan.org. Now, Kate, I know you like to talk about the Decon Chamber, but you like to talk about all kinds of Star Trek things, I think, as well, right?
1: I certainly do. You can't shut me up, Chris.
0: (laughs) I know I've tried. It just doesn't work. Well, if you're like Kate... And no one can shut you up about Star Trek. I think you need to go to TrekFan.org because in addition to talking about Star Trek, you can actually collaborate with other fans to turn your love for Star Trek into something that can help us move towards that Star Trek future. You'll collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles and complete real-life mission objectives, and along the way, you could win great prizes. So support us and support Trek Fan by visiting TrekFan.org, solve that first puzzle, take the next step on your adventure. And we really thank TrekFan for their support of Trek FM and Warp 5. Also, if you enjoyed the smooth jazz cover, we talked a lot about jazz in the show today, didn't we, Kate?
1: We did, subverting the entire Vulcan race.
0: It really is. I think that T'Pol probably loves the version of Where My Heart Will Take Me that we use here on Warp 5. And if you love it too, go and check out Andrew Allen's album Smooth Federation. Because Andrew has this plus nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek. It's, it's really great, very creative work. I love it. I have the album in my iTunes. I listen to it often. Go check it out. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it on Amazon, wherever you get your music. Go and uh, support Andrew and support Star Trek. And we don't get anything from this ourselves. We just love the album. So go support Andrew and support Smooth Federation. And lastly, if you would personally like to support the network and our programming, please visit trek.fm slash donate. We have eight alien themed badges and art prints as a thank you for your contributions. And they're perfect for your shirt, for your bag, for your Vulcan high command, tight cat suit, fitting brown uniform. If that's your thing, just stick them on there. They're 44 millimeter badges. They have original illustration by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the art that you see on our website. And you can mix and match, choose what you want, badges, art prints. There are different levels of contributions that you can make. And your donations help us cover the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring this programming to you every week. And you can get those once again over at trek.fm slash donate. And we really, really appreciate your support of Trek FM and Warp 5.
1: So thanks once again, everyone, for listening. Join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5.